Seattle, good morning. Oh, that was kind of a lame daylight savings. Good morning. Are you guys happy to be in God's house today? Thank you. All right. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online or from one of our campuses. This is always a good thing. I don't know if you, if you connect it when you're here in one location, but we are one family, even though we're in different places. How many of you are grateful to be part of that Seacoast family? So listen, uh, today I'm going to do something that I, I don't usually do. I'm going to tell you a story that I've told before, and, and as a disclaimer, I, you would not believe how many times people ask me to retell this story, and I've never even considered doing it. I always want to bring you something fresh, but as I was preparing for this message, I realized how much it connects to what I want to share today. So some of you, you're kind of, you're like, oh, I hope it's the story. It's the one that you make fun of me for all the time. And then others are like, I have no idea, but it seems like it's going to be good. So either way, I probably set the bar too high, but it happened when I was about 12 years old. I grew up in a home of competitive swimmers. Dad was actually an Olympic swimmer, so it was just kind of part of the family. We were always swimming. We loved it, did it all the time. And like anything, you do it for long enough, you get pretty good at it. And so at 12 years old, I qualified for a major national swim meet. It was the Super Bowl of swimming for a 12-year-old. Ridiculous how much preparation went into this event. We were practicing in the mornings practicing in the evenings. We had special coaching, special diets. We were shaving what little leg hair we had on our 12-year-old bodies just to make ourselves faster. The event was held at the Indiana University Natatorium. It was the largest indoor swimming facility in the U.S. at the time, and it's, it's still one of the largest. If, if you know anything about competitive swimming, this is still today an epicenter of American competitive swimming. It's a big deal to be in this venue. Seats 4,700 people. They still hold a number of NCAA championships and Olympic trials events in this place. And so it has, a, I hope I said it has a seating capacity of 4,700 because that's important later. And so my, my best events as a swimmer were distance freestyle and butterfly. I was okay at the other stuff, but just seemed to have a knack for both of those events. I was I did really well in those. And so I qualified for the finals in the 100-yard butterfly. And all those months, like this was it. This was the mountaintop. All those months of preparation were about to pay off. I was so excited, so ready for this event. They marched us out on the pool deck, called us all by name, where we were from, all the things, put us behind our lanes. I can still remember today I was in lane five. The starter called us to the block. Then he called us to take our mark. And the gun went off, and man, I just exploded off the blocks. I was so hyped and ready for this event. And right away, I knew something was wrong because the water was just a little colder than I had remembered it in warm-ups. In all of my excitement, in all of my preparation, I had forgotten to tie my suit. It happened. Thank God YouTube was not a thing. Now, just to give you some context, I have here a suit similar to the ones that we wore as competition suits. Now, do you know what happens to these when they get wet and rolled up real tight around your legs? They're like lycra handcuffs. They're not coming off. You're not moving them. You might as well just cut them off with scissors. Now, the event, I'm putting this away fast because one of you will take a picture and it'll turn into a really weird meme, so... <laughs> 
The event was the 100 Butterfly. If you know anything about the butterfly, you know it's the one event where your feet have to stay together when you kick, so if you do it properly, it will force your butt out of the water with each kick, right? (laughs) To make it worse, I grew up at the beach where most of our practices were outdoors, so from head to toe, I was really tan all year long except for one little strip right here. That was it. So a proper butterfly kick on a really tan 12-year-old made my cheeks look like little snowballs popping up out of the water all the way down the lane. Four laps, a little over a minute's worth of quality entertainment to a capacity crowd of 4,700 people. I did not get first place, but I did not get last place, which means there were a couple of swimmers who got beat by a naked kid that day. Believe it or not, the race was the easy part. Getting out of the water to a standing ovation, that was the harder part. You're not super comfortable as a 12-year-old with your body and everyone cheering after what you know they just saw. It's just, it was awkward, not gonna lie. And so I, you know, I, I decided I've gotta make my way to the locker room just as fast as I can. So I resituated, got up out of the water, started moving towards the locker room and I could see my coach coming towards me. And I thought, oh, good, maybe, maybe he will have something to say, something that will encourage me, some consolation to make this better. And he gets close to me. He puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, Adam, nice swim. Good thing it wasn't the backstroke. (laughs) It It didn't help as much as you thought. Now. I'm going to make what feels like a really hard transition into a topic that has nothing to do with that story. But I promise you, if you will hang with me, you will see the connection here. So for the last few weeks, if you have been with us, you know that we've been in a series called Common Ground, where we're looking at two questions. What do we believe and why does it matter? And today we're going to tackle the topic of what is the Bible. And so here's where I'm going today, just to to let you know. We're going to deal with three questions. What is the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? And why does it matter? And those are the three points on your outline. A lot of times we come up with creative, memorable points. Today we're just doing questions. Three questions that we'll use to explore the idea of what is the Bible? What is it? Can we trust it? Why should it matter? So before we get started, let me just say this. In in preparing for this message a few weeks ago, uh, up until this week, I, I I had spent a ton of time studying and then I nearly threw it all away on Monday. I got to a point where I was like, like, I love this topic. I've spent a lifetime studying this stuff. I mean, you go to seminary, you do all the things, and you know a lot of stuff, and you think, I don't know that anyone else cares. It's why I went back to school, actually. I mean, I got a degree from seminary, and then I realized nobody really cares about systematic theology. Nobody. But they do want to know why they're hurting. And so I went back to school and did some counseling degrees, and that seems a lot more practical <laughs> You guys don't care about the other stuff. So anyway, I threw all that stuff away thinking like, I don't know if they'll care about all these facts and there's super compelling evidence about why the Bible is a reliable document. But I thought today it might be better if we just made this personal. So I am going to answer. I realize, though, that in doing that, that's going to leave a few questions unanswered for you. Maybe you're thinking, oh, good, finally an answer to whatever. And I'm not going to tackle every question. I can't in in the time that we have. So I'm going to offer you, though, a couple that seem to always come up. 
Things that just, whenever anybody talks about the Bible, these questions seem to emerge. Like, what about the dinosaurs? Come on, Adam. They're not in the Bible. Does that mean that the Bible's wrong or the dinosaurs didn't exist? Which is it? And I would say, I don't know that you have to split the hair because my question will be, what about hip hop? That's not in the Bible, but that's very real, right? Here's the thing. The Bible never intended to tackle every topic. It was intended to, to address a far greater purpose, much bigger deal. So the, the dinosaurs and hip hop, they just didn't make the cut. That's all. Here's another one. What about all the different versions of the Bible? How, how do you know which one is right? Well, I would say that almost all of the ones that you can get your hands on today are pretty accurate. If you're looking for a recommendation, I would say that the ESV, that's a great one. The NIV is another great one, very reliable. Even the NLT is another good translation. All of those are very solid. Now, here's another one. Why would I trust the Bible? Why would I even read the Bible when it talks about things like violence and polygamy, when it promotes that kind of stuff? Well, I would, and that's a big one, to be fair, I get it. That's a big one. But I would suggest that it doesn't actually promote those kinds of things. If you read it in context, you'll see that in most cases, nearly every situation, it's, it's mentioning these as an example of things not to do because of the destruction that it creates in our lives. Find me one place in the Bible where having a bunch of wives was a great thing. It didn't work out great. Never did. So as we get started today, I realize we all come, whether you're here, whether you're at a campus, online, we all come with different ideas about the Bible. And my intention is to help us find some common ground that we can stand on together about what we as a church believe about this book. So my first real experience with the Bible came when I was 15 years old. I was invited to go to a Young Life Bible study in my neighborhood, and I was pretty uncomfortable about going, but a bunch of my friends were going, so I had committed to doing it. I didn't want to go because I knew that I knew nothing about the Bible, and I was pretty sure that like what I did know, I was, what I was going to learn, I wasn't going to like. like I, it, just, it was always one of those books. I was like, oh, the Bible, stay away from it. So I go, and I sit in this circle of guys who are all there, and the guy who's leading it passes out a bunch of paperback Bibles to us. And then he says, okay, everybody turn to John. I thought John was a guy in the room we were going to turn to, and he was going to read something to us. I had no idea it was a book in the Bible. Thankfully, I didn't embarrass myself. I just kind of played it cool, and then I saw everybody thumbing around, and I was like, what page are you on? So I turned to John. But I was super skeptical about the Bible. Like I said, what, I, I was fairly certain I wouldn't understand it. And then what I did understand, I was fairly certain I wasn't going to like it. So I, I just I, I didn't think I was going to like or enjoy the Bible. But that was my problem. I didn't understand it. And I think that's most of our problem. Most of us don't understand the Bible, why it was written, what it intended to address. And I think it's that same lack of understanding that fuels the resistance, the opposition, even the vehemence that comes out at, towards the Bible at times. We live in a world that does not like to give up personal authority. And make no mistake, the Bible does challenge us to recognize that there is an authority in this universe and it is not us. Amen. Tim Keller said it like this. He said, today as never before, the character of the Bible is publicly attacked as cruel and oppressive. And those who would uphold the historic view of its truthfulness are seen in the same light. 
I agree with the statement, but I don't know that it's, it's all that recent because back in the 1700s, this was an issue, issue to it. It emerged with the Enlightenment. But the French writer Voltaire in the 1700s openly attacked the Bible and said this, in a hundred years, the Bible will be a forgotten book, a relic only to be found in museums. hundred years later, Voltaire was dead and the Geneva Bible Society purchased his house for the printing and distribution of Bibles. Yeah. Touche, Voltaire. Sorry about that. Billy Graham said there's a different reason that people find the Bible difficult. He said, we are the Bibles people are reading. And that is the reason the world doesn't trust scripture. Ouch, Billy Graham. Like it's true, but it stings a little bit, right? But forget what others say about the Bible. And let's start with that basic question that I told you earlier. What is it? What is the Bible? What does it say about itself? Well, Hebrews 4 says this, for the word of God is alive and active. Anyone who's read it will tell you that's true. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Second Timothy 3 says, every part of God's scripture is, I love this, God breathed and useful in one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes and training us to live God's way. Isaiah 40 says the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Now, that's what the Bible says about itself. What is it? What is this book? It's actually a library of books. It's a collection of books that emerged out of the history of the people of ancient Israel. It addresses topics like the origin of life, death, the struggles of humanity, but more than anything, it focuses on the unconditional love of God through his son, Jesus. This book highlights the mercy and sacrifice that was given to restore our relationship to God. That's what the Bible is. But if we're honest, there's a bigger question spinning around in our heads, and that is, can we trust it? Can we trust the Bible? In Western culture, we are taught to be naturally skeptical people. It's true. I mean, we don't have to admit it. It's just true. We've been taught to question and challenge nearly everything. And that's okay. God's not afraid nor intimidated by any of our questions. But let me give you an idea just how skeptical we are. I'm going to tell you a story about one of your elders here at Seacoast. Okay. One of your elders and his wife, she thought she might be pregnant. And so she decided to take one of these pregnancy tests to confirm it. You guys have seen these, right? But she bought a box, brought him home, and he pulled him out of the box. And he was like, no way, no way you can get an accurate result just by peeing on this stick. So what did he do? He peed on the stick. He decided to test the accuracy himself. Turns out the stick outsmarted him. His wife was pregnant. He wasn't. Now, I'm not going to tell you who that elder is, but you know who you are. You know. 
So as naturally skeptical people, how do we even begin to answer a question like, can we trust the Bible? I think the first thing we have to do is understand how historians would seek to answer a question like that. To determine the reliability of scripture, literary scientists, that's what they're called, would address two components, date and accuracy. Date and accuracy. They would seek to answer these questions. How many copies do we have? Allowing for a comparison of the accuracy. And then when were the earliest copies discovered? Meaning, was it close to when the author wrote or when the actual events occurred? They can figure out those two things. They can give you a really solid idea of whether or not a text is reliable. And so here's how they'd use the criteria. I've got a little chart for us. We'll go through through an exercise together. Let's take Aristotle. You guys have probably heard of him. He wrote a book called Poetics. Five copies or manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts were discovered. And they were written, dated within 1,400 years of when Aristotle wrote. Believe it or not, literary science has decided it's pretty reliable, pretty trustworthy. Let's take another one. Let's look at Homer. You guys have probably heard of Homer. He wrote an epic poem called called the Iliad. Some of you may have read it in school. They found 1,800 copies or fragments of the Iliad that are dated to within within about 400 years of when Homer wrote. And historians would say that because the date is so close to when he wrote, and because there's such a large large number of copies or fragments that there's an extremely high degree of reliability of this particular document. So if, if, that's, if those represent the benchmarks for literary science, and, and they do, then how does the Bible stack up against that? Let's take a look. So the New Testament, we have 5,800 copies or fragments of the Greek New Testament. And the earliest that we have is dated to within, it's a piece of John's gospel That's dated to within 50 years of when John wrote it. So if we take the same level of scrutiny that we would apply to Homer or Aristotle and we apply that to the Bible, then based on literary science, we don't have another conclusion. We have to admit that the Bible is a reliable, trustworthy, accurate document. But that's not really the question. The real question we want to know is, is what the Bible says true? Not is the document itself trustworthy or reliable, but is what the Bible says true? Particularly, is what the Bible says about Jesus true? His life, the things he said about himself, his death, the resurrection most definitely, is all of that true? Because if what the Bible says about Jesus is true, then we can't afford to not deal with this book. We've got to engage with it. So here's where the dating becomes so important. The dating of the text. Most of the New Testament writings, what we have about Jesus in the Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even the book of Acts. It was written by the same person. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. And then the writings of Paul and all of his letters. They're written within 60 years of when Jesus lived. The letters that Paul wrote were written 15 to 20 years of within when, within when Jesus lived. If what they wrote, any of those writers, if what they wrote wasn't true, it would have been all too easy for all of the eyewitnesses to raise their hand and go, no, 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 I was there. 
That's not what happened. Nobody did that. That story that I told you earlier about me at the swim meet, I get this question all the time. Come on, that didn't really happen, right? That's crazy. That didn't really happen. And believe me, my answer is the same thing. I wish it didn't happen. Believe me, I wish it didn't happen. But there are too many eyewitnesses who were there, who are still alive today, some of whom even go to this church, that could raise their hand and say, no, 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 I was there. That's not what happened. It's these eyewitness accounts, the people who were alive when this stuff was still written that creates such a problem for those who want to challenge what the Bible says about Jesus. We have to deal with it. So since we're so close to Easter, let's just take the resurrection as an example here, okay? Perhaps because I'm just going to tell, I can't tell you everything about the, I would love to, another day, different time. There's so much evidence about the resurrection and, and that it actually is a historical event. But two things that I find super compelling related to this book are how the gospels are written. Because if the gospel writers were trying to write something that would have been believable, they would never have written it like this. Never. They make the disciples look like fools. They make them look like cowards. But more than that, Every one of the gospel writers say that the first people to arrive at the empty tomb were women. And women in that day were not valued as they should have been. Their word was not even admissible in court. And so coming to anybody, a group of women coming to anybody and saying Jesus has risen, they would have immediately been rejected. If you wanted to write a story that convinced the world of the resurrection, you would never have done it like this. You would never have done it like this. That gives us one explanation. These books that we have in the Bible were not meant to be, they were not written to be believable. They were written simply as a historic eyewitness account. And so we have to deal with it. So we've talked a little bit about what the Bible is. We've talked a little about can we trust it? And let's get to the real question here, the so what question. Why does it matter? Why should any of this matter to me? Why does the Bible matter? When the book of James, we read this in the first chapter. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, he's describing the Bible here, the perfect law that gives freedom. And continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. So James says the Bible is a book that brings us freedom. It matters because it brings us freedom. But it's not the kind of freedom that we think about in Western culture. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to look up the definition, how we define it today. It's horrifying. It's terrifying. Let me read the definition of freedom as we would define it today. Freedom is the right to act or speak or think as one wants without hindrance or restraint. Can you imagine how destructive that would be in our lives? Just imagine that for a second in your marriage, huh? Imagine that as a wedding vow, right? Here's the groom. Honey, I promise to think and speak and act as I want to without hindrance or restraint. Do you take this woman? I do. Do you take this man? Are you drunk? 
Not a chance she's taking that man. Not a chance. That would be insanity. That kind of freedom would ruin us. But the freedom that James talks about here is different. The Greek word he uses is the word for liberty. And what James is saying is that God's word will actually liberate us from the selfish desires within us that would destroy us and hurt those around us. God's word brings us freedom because it helps us to see who we, who we are and who we were made to be. It helps us to see that we need a savior and his name is Jesus. He's the only one. God's word brings us freedom. This book and everything in it points to Jesus. It points to the promised savior who went to the cross to repay a debt we would never be able to repay in order to restore our relationship with God. That's why the Bible matters. But let's look at James's words again. He says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Now that phrase looks intently. It's only mentioned five times in the whole New Testament. One is here. Four are in reference to the resurrection. Three of those are in reference to the empty tomb itself. Now, why is James using a phrase where it, it appears that the predominant use of it is with the resurrection and the empty tomb? It's a Greek word called parakouptos. Why is he doing it? Well, if you think about it, think about that moment when Peter and John were told by the women about the empty tomb. John records it in his gospel. He says they ran to the empty tomb. He bent over and looked in, looked intently at the strips of linen lying there. So just take yourself back there for a second. The women come to Peter and John and they say, he's not there. We went. He's not there. He's risen. The angel said he's gone. He's risen. So they take off running for the tomb and they get there. And I don't know what your mental picture of the tomb of Jesus looks like. But Dana and I got to go to Israel a few years ago, and we, we toured the place where they believe Jesus was buried. It's much smaller than I had pictured in my mind. I've got a picture of it here if you want to see it. You would have to almost, to go into it, you'd have to almost crawl. To look into it, you definitely would have to stoop down. And so John says, looked in, same word, looked intently, same one that James uses. When they get to that empty tomb, I have to imagine that Peter and John get down and as they look in, they're thinking, I don't know what I'm about to see here, but I'm pretty sure it's going to change my life forever. Same phrase that James uses to describe God's word, the perfect law that gives freedom. I think the reason he does it is because every time we open this book, posture of our heart ought to be, I don't know what I'm about to see here, but I'm pretty sure. It's going to change my life forever. That's why the Bible matters. When I was 18 years old, I was a freshman in college, uh, was a religion and philosophy major. And uh, some of the professors that I had were just, they were really challenging for me. They said some wild things about Jesus. And at 18, I didn't always know how to deal with those. So I needed to find someone who could help me. Someone who had studied the Bible for longer than I had and knew more than I did. And so I'd heard about this Presbyterian church not far from campus, specifically about one of the pastors there. His name was Dr. Ross. 
And I started to meet with Dr. Ross. I was blown away at how this man understood scripture. More than that, I was, I was shocked at how he loved scripture. You could just tell he, he had a love affair with God's word. And so I started meeting with him regularly. And I would kind of push my questions out, the things I was hearing in my classes. Like, why would they say this? And he, would, he was kind enough to enter my, entertain my questions and help me understand why my professors were saying what they were and how I could stand firmly on what the Bible had, had said about given topics. And, and so it was, it was great for me. But he was kind enough to invite me to a Friday morning men's Bible study. It met at a house not far from campus, 6 a.m. every Friday morning. Clearly, they were not interested in getting college kids to come because it was at 6 a.m. Don't do that. I was the only 18-year-old there in a room full of 40, 40-plus-year-olds. 40 they were all dressed in their suits, ready to go to work after it was over. I was in a T-shirt, and I was going back to bed when it was over. <laughs> but it was those Friday mornings, hearing God's word, it's where it came alive for me in such a new way. And hearing the men teach, hearing them struggle, hearing their questions made me feel better about my own, hearing the hope they held on to when life was difficult, hearing the joy they carried with them because they knew God was for them and with them. I never knew standing at the door of a house I'd never been to, about to meet a group of men I had never seen before that I would be so encouraged, so challenged, so inspired to seek God in his word. And that's because the Bible, the word of God, it creates a common ground for us as God's children. Despite our age, it became a common ground for us. Many of you know that my wife, Dana, recently had surgery back in, in December, and uh, what was supposed to be a, a recovery of a few weeks has turned into many months, and uh, she has felt pretty terrible for a long time, and it's been, it's been hard. Um, dang it. <sighs> it's been a long time of not knowing when the turn would come, when she would begin to feel better. And so she, thankfully... I mean, praise God, these last five or six days, she has felt better than she's felt in months. So we're grateful for that and praying that is the turn. And I believe, I'll say this, I believe that's because so many of the people here, you guys, our family, have been at, not just asking about her, but praying for her. The people who stand with us on that common ground of God's word and God's promises, you have been praying for her. So we're grateful for that turn. But it has been a real struggle for us. And, and about a week ago, when she was feeling pretty rotten, we got a text. From one of the men that I met at that Bible study 30 years ago. It said this. Led by Jim Augustine, 40 men prayed for you this morning. Might not seem like a big deal, but when you're in the ditch... And, and people that you've known for 30 years 
climb down in it with you, it means a lot. That's because the Bible, the word of God, it creates a common ground among God's people that sows the hearts of his children together forever. So maybe you're saying, all right, you got me. I'm interested. I'm not getting up at 6 a.m. for a Bible study, but I'm interested. I want to learn a little more about the Bible. I'd offer you three quick, four quick things. Start simple. Start with community. Start with humility and never give up. Start simple means to start in the right place. Don't tackle the book of Leviticus or Revelation. That's just not a good starting point. Start in one of the Gospels or in the Psalms. The Gospel of John is a great place to start. Start with community. It means to get some people around you who can help. You're going to get more out of the Bible if you'll involve people who will encourage you and inspire you to keep at it. Start with humility means that we have to leave our pride out of it. When we read the Bible, we may find things that we don't understand. We may find things we don't like. We have to continue to approach God with a willingness to let him shape our understanding. That's why Jesus said that we have to come to him as little children. We need to come with an openness to learn from him and let him lead us. And finally, never give up. I'll make you a promise today. A lifetime of reading God's word is the most transformative thing you will ever do. John Bunyan said it like this. He's the author of a book called Pilgrim's Progress. He says, read and read again. And do not despair of help to understand the will and mind of God. Neither trouble your heads, though you have not commentaries and exposition. Pray and read, read and pray for a little from God is better than a great deal from men. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word, that it is indeed the perfect law that gives us freedom. It sets us on a course where we can Live into the identity you made for us, leaving behind the selfishness that would otherwise hurt us and those we care about. So, Lord, let us go deeper into it. It's there and waiting. We thank you for the invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.